Hey everyone, welcome to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm your host, Meg Ricci, and this podcast series is about demystifying women's hormonal issues and struggles and everything that dances in between. And so much dancing has been going on over the past four months. And quite honestly, over the past few weeks, it's been really crazy down here in South Carolina, particularly Charleston. The numbers for COVID-19 has just skyrocketed. And somehow people down here just have a really difficult time social distancing and they want to go to bars and they want to hang out in big groups and we just have to dial it back. We all want to do that. It's really, it's a challenge. And for myself, about two weeks ago, I came down with COVID-19 and super thankful. I had a mild version of it. It lasted about 10 days. I started with a nasty sinus headache, and over a 36, 48-hour period, I just started feeling really crappy fatigue. My brain was absolutely scrambled. Uh, I lost my sense of taste, but the real challenge was I felt as if I was climbing up a mountain. My breathing was pretty labored, and my fingers were kind of tingly, and um, it really knocked the sail out of me. And again, took all my supplements, super thankful, came through it. And on day 11, I just, everything started to improve. My breathing improved. I just started feeling better. And now it's been two and a half weeks and feeling in a really great place. So I am so glad to be here. And also on another note, I've received a negative test result. And when I spoke to the clinic, they said, yes, your result is negative. But I said, but I'm having all these symptoms and I just lost my taste. Do you want me to come in again and get tested? And she's like, no, you're contagious. So I thought that was kind of funny because 40% of negative test results are actually positive. So that means that out of 100 negative test results, 40 people are walking around with COVID-19 and spreading it. And so right now it's still like the wild west in terms of COVID testing. And I think the best that we can do right now, and the most important thing I can help you with is to assist you in finding the calm within the storm and the chaos around us. We are traveling along a highway on an unpredictable road trip without a compass or a map, and not really sure where we're going to end up. So how do we navigate our lives right now? Do we need a new driver's manual or one with maneuver revisions that allows us to turn into the skid and right ourselves along a highway without any signage? And in the lovely words of one of my favorite writers, Annie Lamott, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. This is what the world feels like right now. There is a grace in this moment that is shaking up our lives and forcing us to look inward and ask, how do I move forward? Or how do I stay still? until I know how to move.
How do I flow with the uncertainty of uncertainty? How can I show up in this world and be the best version of me? How can I make a difference and be part of the change? And this is a struggle for so many of us. And a part of us just wants to go back to the way it was because we feel so done with it all. I felt so done with it all a week and a half ago. I was so sick and tired of quarantining. We quarantined for months and then I had to do it again. And I just was like, God, give me grace to just be where I am. So the title of today's episode, Turning into the Skid, What's the New Maneuver? And my guest, I love this woman madly. Her name is Andrea Codrington Lipke. Andrea came to me about 13 years ago, I guess it could even be longer, and she had just come out of a bumpy marriage, and she was seeking a way to balance her life that included seeing me for nutrition and acupuncture, and over the years, Andrea would come in to see me for a variety of things. She also came to see me during her journey of having two children, and I'm going to let her share that story. But let me tell you a little about this wonderful woman. She's so delicious. Andrea is a great writer. She's a wonderful interviewer. She's a great teacher and storyteller, and she's a wonderful mother. She has been a columnist for the New York Times and has written for such publications as the Washington Post, Kinfolk, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Metropolis, and Cabinet. And Andrea was also an editor at Faden Press and senior editor at ID Magazine. She's a lecturer at Parsons School of Design, the School of Visual Arts, Yale, and Pratt. And Andrea is currently developing several fiction and nonfiction book projects. And my love, Andrea, welcome on to the Hormone Lifestyle Zone. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, Meg, it's awesome to be here. Thank you so much for thinking of me to uh, talk to you today. Well, you know, I reached out to you a few weeks back and I had said to you, you've been so in my mind. And I think I was really starting to reach out to people that were part of my past that really impacted me. And you were one of those individuals. And we speak every few years. You were actually down in Charleston for a brief visit, I think about three years ago. And I remember sitting down by the water with you and your husband, Ira, took the kids and went off and did something. And we were sitting down by the water and you said, you know, Meg, I didn't realize that it would be so hard at my age to have two kids, such active children. Lord and, have mercy. It's even more will, so now. <laughs> yeah, and you will get to share that. But what was really lovely about the conversation is that you told this beautiful story that involved a dear friend of yours of turning into the skid. And I would just so love for you to share that story. No, I will. Well, as any of us who have been driving and during our lives or taken safety courses or driver's ed, there's this concept of when you hit ice or wet ground or whatever that makes you start to skid, your response is really critical. And you'd think that what you'd want to do is turn away from the skid to right yourself, to kind of balance yourself. But actually what you're supposed to do is turn your wheel in the direction of the skid, which seems frankly bonkers. When I'm, when I'm sitting in my head just thinking, okay, well, so that's where the danger is and you're going to turn into the danger. 
that seems like nuts. Although in fact, it's the, it's the back wheels that you're often turning. So my friend Sky, who's my husband's very best friend. And I have to say one of my best friends at this point, this incredible filmmaker, poet, sage who lives in Seattle. He is the one who kind of turned me on to the idea of applying that concept of turning into the skid in your in your life, actually, in a kind of existential way. And the context for him telling me was a couple of years ago, his mom died after a long battle with cancer, as did mine a little earlier than his, but nonetheless, in the same passel of years. And she left him a little inheritance, not much, but enough to do something nice with. And she left him with this idea of doing something that didn't necessarily, wasn't like putting it aside for, to buy something for college for his kids or something like that. It was, it's something that will make your heart sing. And he loves sailing. He spent his life around boats as an adult. And so he bought a sailboat, like a 42 foot sailboat that he keeps in Seattle in Elliott Bay. And when I asked him what he was doing with the inheritance, he said, I'm turning into the skid. I bought a boat. I didn't quite understand what he meant. But now I do that turning into the skid, doing something that's unexpected, that's maybe a little off the beaten path or or not what most people would do can be a lifeline, actually can save your life. And And in true sky fashion, he has basically made it a retreat for people. We were recently, I'm, I'm talking to you today from Los Angeles where we don't live, but we're living for the summer. And we can get into how that's about mm-hmm. turning into the skid. But we were in Seattle recently on his boat for two days sailing up north towards the Canadian border to San Juan Island. And when you're sailing with people, there's a lot of waiting around for the wind or for the weather to pass or to pull this rope or that rope or to lower the boom or what have you. And you tend to get into really deeply meaningful philosophical conversations and especially at a time like now where where there is so much unknown as you said the uncertainty of everything we've really started talking about what it means to turn into the skid for us as friends for us as a community even as a nation and there's a big skid going on right now so I think it's interesting for all of us to be thinking what does that mean to be doing something that might be counterintuitive since we all want safety and comfort and for for things to be the way they were before all this happened but i don't think there's any going back i think yeah. it's all the skid actually yeah i yeah it's so weird it's kind of like i think about santa claus and i think about when my my sister told me there was no santa claus and my brother Frank came into the kitchen and he slapped my sister in the face. But I knew, but I knew deep inside there wasn't a Santa Claus, and mm. I couldn't go back to that that moment of of magic. And yeah. where we are right now, it is a new beginning. I think this happens after wars, after World War One, after World War Two, at the Vietnam War. Absolutely, things change. Everything comes to a head. It festers, and you just don't know how things are going to turn. It's everything is so turbulent, and then 
it just the boat starts to sail mm-hmm. and you start and, moving forward. And you can't you can't really sail without wind. You know, yeah. wind isn't necessarily for anybody who's been sailing out there. Wind is not necessarily a comfortable thing. Well, you know, I've learned over the years and I've said to clients a lot of times when you are feeling as if you are stuck and nothing will change, that means that when everything feels like the the shit is hitting the fan, it means that it's time to change. When we are feeling uncomfortable, something is supposed to shift. That's how we grow. Yeah. who would have ever thought a global pandemic? Can you even, I mean. A catalyst. I mean, this is like a, I mean, if somebody said, oh, by the way, you know, we're writing a script for a movie and they described this and they described someone like President Trump leading a country and having statues taken down and having marches like Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is an extraordinary time that we live in. Well, I have a question for you, because it it seems to me that there have been times like this. I was born in 67, so I have no real recollection of 1968. But you're a little bit older than me. Do you have any recollection of that time? Because I know that that was really a a time of tremendous upheaval. I was 12. This is a great question. And I wish I had my brother Frank and John here. My parents were really concerned that they would be drafted. And I think they were actually trying to figure out a way to get them. I I hope I'm, I think I remember this correctly, that they did not want them to fight. And Mm. if need be, thinking of ways to get them out of the country, my oldest brother. I know my brother Frank attended NYU and marched on D.C. Mm. and attended those marches. And I wish I could tell you more, but I don't, you know. I don't really, I mean, this is interesting. At that time when all of this was going on, I had been in parochial school and taught by nuns and had been in this private school where we had 60 kids in a class. What? And I just would, my mind would drift off into space. And I remember at the end of fifth grade, my mom was really sweet. She sat me down. She said, honey. If you don't pass these tests, they're going to leave you back or we can send you to summer school. And I was like, what? So I studied, I went to summer school and then sixth grade started and I felt really lost. I came from a large family and I just wasn't learning anything. And my mother took us out of Catholic school, parochial school and put us into public school. It was a big change in my life. It's incredible uncertainty. I always wore a uniform. And for, you know, for six years or whatever. And there I was in a public school and it was so new and classes were smaller. And I had all these hand-me-downs because I didn't really have clothes. I wore like one dress to go to church on Sunday or two. And then I had a uniform because there were so many kids. It changed my life. But it was scary. to see what you looked like when you were a 12-year-old little ragamuffin. (laughs) And I know I might be getting off track and I want to get back to our questions, but I think I had mentioned in another podcast that I was cast in a play as in in sixth grade in 1968 as an acupuncturist. What? And in the play, I wore my sister's dragon bathrobe and I borrowed somebody's crochet needles. And there I am on the stage with these crochet needles going, yes, the evil spirits have come upon him. 
but I doubt if we can drive them away. You are kidding me. No, I'm not. My teacher wrote a play about China and had written a play about China, and I was the acupuncturist. Wow. So, uh, you know, there are these funny, wackadoo twists and turns that happen in life. There sure are. Things show up years earlier, and then they manifest years later. So getting back into the, the groove of this story... Can you share about your two kids? Yes, I I can. So this is kind of actually a good way of going into this concept of turning into the skid. You know, I'm 53 now. I was married at age 29 and divorced at age 38 with no children. And that's about when I came onto the scene with Meg and really in a not a great place emotionally, psychologically, physically. You know, anybody who's been through a divorce or a broken relationship knows how exhausting it can be. And, you know, I always describe it this way, that I was so exhausted from the divorce that I, for about a year, would take a shower lying in the shower stall. I was, I would literally like lie down on the ground because I was so exhausted. (laughs) I'm not a lazy person. I was just really down. And also, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted kids, not desperately, but had always assumed that kids would be a part of my life. And when you get a divorce at age 38 and you're a woman with no real prospects of having kids, it's, that was really hard for me. But I also knew that I didn't want to be somebody who just needed to go find somebody to get pregnant with because I was I I knew that I needed to recover from the divorce before I got involved with anybody in a healthy way. And I, I wasn't in any spot to single parent at the time. So I, I kind of put it on the back burner and worked on myself, which was really critical. And Four years later, met Ira, who is my husband now, and we've been married for almost 11 years. So I was 42 when I got remarried, very happily. And he is almost eight years younger than me. So when we got married, when I was 42 and he was 34, we obviously knew that if we were going to have kids together, it was going to have to happen soon and that it might not happen biologically. And he was cool with that. And I was cool with that. And so when I was 44, we wanted to have a few years together without just us. We had a very fast courtship. We were really good friends for a year. Then we dated for five months and we were married. We had an engagement that was a week long. And then we eloped to Brazil and had a wonderful wedding there on the beach. Mm. So when it was time to really consider getting pregnant, I it wasn't happening. And, you know, despite taking good care of myself and I went to see um, a fertility expert. I, I referred you. Yes. uh, Yes. I don't know, a couple of people or one in in particular who was lovely. And she was like, listen, you know, it's going to be a stretch. If you want donor egg, you, that can happen. And I was like, well, I, at that point, it's not important you know, it's not that important for my husband to have his genetic material in the child. So why not just adopt? So we decided to adopt and 
We, in a very different way, but in as intense a way, perhaps, as when you're pregnant, the nine months of, you know, your body changing, your heart changing, the anticipation of this child, and then the final labor and push of giving birth, there's a similar thing that happens emotionally and legally in terms of paperwork when you're adopting. We adopted through an agency, which was great. And, you know, you have to go through all kinds of considerations that are really, you know, you have to be very intentional in determining, you know, what kind of child you're willing to bring into your life. You know, they, they have you go through some very serious questions as to what you can uh, handle, what you can accept, whether there's drug or mental illness in the family of origin. Also, matters of ethnicity and race. Are you, if you are white, are you willing to have children that look different than you? If you are, do you know the ramifications and the kind of sometimes difficult circumstances that kids of mixed, you know, in transracial families face? And are you willing to take that on? And in essence, when you do, when you are white and you adopt a child of color, you become the minority. To be healthy for the kid, you have to place yourself in a community of people who look like them and make sure that they're surrounded by people who look like them so they don't feel like the exception and the oddball. So we did a lot of research and I, I'm, an, you know, I'm a journalist and an interviewer. And so I spoke to many, many people, all different kinds of families and Ira and I really determined that we were willing and able and actually felt called to be parents of children of a different color. So when we said that, and that was in our file, about two weeks after we were all set to be chosen, because nowadays you as the adoptive parents are chosen by the birth parents. It's not like a match that's made by the agency or God knows you don't sit there with pictures of little babies and decide which baby you want a parent, fortunately. So about two weeks after we were all set to be ready to go, we were chosen by an African-American woman in Philadelphia and went down and met our little baby son, who we named Ransom, which was a family name. And we had him for four days. And his father changed his mind. And we got the phone call on an afternoon. We were still in Pennsylvania. We had rented a barn uh, for a week while paperwork was being drawn up to allow the child out of the state of origin to go back to New York. We were living in Brooklyn at the time. And we got a call from our social worker who said, you have to bring him back now. And we understood that this happens sometimes in about 5% of adoption cases, the birth parents change their mind. And depending on what state you're in, I think in Pennsylvania, they have 30 days to change their mind. It's not finalized for another six months, but it gets very, very difficult for them to change their mind after that amount of time. I think in New Jersey, it's 72 hours. So it's different in different states. And we literally had to 
drive him back. And I'll never forget it. There was a hurricane. This is in September of 2012. There was a hurricane or a tornado. It was a tornado in Bucks County. And we had to drive through the tornado, through the driving rains, to return this boy who we already loved, had already named, had already announced. And it was it was devastating. Mm. It was absolutely gutting because bonding can happen really, really quickly. So we were really broken up about it. I mean, if a parent changes his or her not her mind, then who are we to, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And there, yeah. So that, that it's almost never happens that the father changes his mind. Usually if it happens in the 5% of the chances, it's the mother, but, but he did. And now there's a little boy who's probably, he was almost eight years old in Philadelphia somewhere who we called our son for four days. So we were kind of crushed by it. And we decided to to kind of freeze our file for about a week. It would have been longer, but they emphasized how important it was to get back on it because they can never tell you how long it takes to, to be chosen. It can take years to be chosen, to be honest. The fact that we'd gotten chosen in two weeks was kind of unprecedented. So we agreed that in a week's time, on October 1st of 2012, we were back online to be chosen. And our daughter was born that night. And we were chosen the very next day. Wow. So also, interestingly, in Philadelphia. So we basically went back down there with tremendous fear in our hearts that the same thing was going to happen. But this did not change. And our daughter, Rai, uh, was born. And we were, you know, having kind of determined or been open to having a family, a mixed race family. We ended up having a white child, which was something we hadn't expected. And she has been the light of our lives. Uh, she'll be eight. She will be eight in October on October 2nd. And talk about turning into the skid, the fear that we felt yeah. of, you know, and everybody was like, no, no, just wait, wait, you've got to heal from this. And somehow Providence, God, mm-hmm. great spirit, I'm not going to call it luck because I think somehow we get the children we're meant to have. And yeah, I believe that so souls that come to us. Yeah. Um, and I, I will yeah. give you, there's like a big postscript to this, which is we ended up developing a relationship with Rai's birth parents, who were a young couple who are still together to this day, I believe. And they got pregnant again two and a half years later, and they still felt that they weren't ready to parent. And that little <laughs> bean is our son, Soren, who just turned five last week. So... I mean, I'm astounded every time I think of the incredible blessing that came out of that skid turning. And and I was in the room when Soren was born. It's been amazing. They, 
there could only be one person other than them who were in, and they invited me. So Rye and Ira were in the waiting room and I saw my son being born and, um, I'll, I, I, you know, words fail me. So this turning into the skid has been, I think that's probably the, the, one of the most stunning examples in my life of how kind of doubling down and going into the uncertainty and, and potential for great pain, you know? So here we are with these two kids, beautiful, highly energetic, super annoying sometimes. <laughs> um <laughs> But I mean, my my absolute delight and the biggest challenge and grace of my lifetime has been through being their mother and and also being co-parenting with Ira has been just such a, an amazing experience. So for that, I'm grateful. But here we are in COVID times. And yeah, and when I reached out to you, you were somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And I went, and I knew that Ira's family is out there. And I thought, oh my God, you guys moved. And you said, no, we're out in the Pacific Northwest and we're going to spend time and figure things out. And so now you can share another skid in the road. Okay. And, well, I mean, the, this is a skid that we're all familiar with because we're all in the same skid. Yeah, we are. We're all in the same um, car right now. You know, as an older mom, I'm 53 with a five-year-old and a nearly eight-year-old. They keep me very, very young. <laughs> but I feel, you know, all 53 years in my bones, in a sense, uh, in a good way, too. And I'm a writer, and I have really been very, very protective of my time to myself to kind of cultivate my creativity and to write and you know, my kids have been in school in some form since they were three because of that. And this idea of, you know, homeschooling or having kids at home all the time was horrifying to me. So when it actually happened, I was like, holy crap. And I was kind of broken about it and felt just tremendous amounts of stress and fear. What was I going to do with my kids? They go to public school, so there wasn't a, a big plan for the first month, basically. And so when I was forced to kind of take things into my own hands, I did it very begrudgingly. Um, it felt like a death, in a sense. But little by little, I started seeing the changes in my kids, and especially Soren, my son, who is so high touch and high energy and has like the biggest personality and heart you can possibly imagine. He just flourished. And so did my daughter, who's a lot more independent and kind of twisty, turny, internal artist type. And um, they were both, I just saw that they wanted us more than anything. And so when it seemed like I just knew that things were going to be kind of con really confusing and probably complicated in the fall. Already in May, I just determined that we were going to homeschool this year, which would have seemed like a suicide mission for me 
if you had told me about this in February, like you're going to homeschool your kids, I would have been like, get the beep out. And you're like, Meg, I'm going to fly down and hang out with you for a while in Charleston. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs> um, but I'm really, really excited. And it turns out that I wasn't wrong. And now I know so many people, those who are able to, I understand the privilege, the tremendous privilege that I have in not having to hold down a full-time job and being able to do that with my kids is not something that many people are able to do. So, but basically what this has engendered in us is the sense of, well, what's next? Because my husband's a photographer and most of his things have been canceled for the year. Yeah. which which put us in you know pretty bad financial situation fortunately we live in a part of long island that is very desirable for new yorkers to come spend weekends and summers so we had the idea of why don't we just rent our house out for the summer because we knew we could make a lot of money that way and basically go visit friends and family in seattle and environs including sky our our sailboat guru and family, and then basically drive down the West Coast, which we did. We we drove over for five weeks. We were on the road in Seattle, in the, the San Juan Islands near Canada, then driving down basically from the Canadian border all for two weeks, the entire length of the West Coast down to San Diego visiting people, staying in people's RVs in their backyard, social distance, picnicking, you know, did, staying in motels. Um, did you drive from New York out no, to... No, we flew. We oh, flew okay. on June 1st. And that was surreal, just seeing, you know, we left Kennedy Airport and it. I have never seen anything as desolate as that airport on June 1st at 7.30 in the morning. You know, we have taken a risk for sure, but we've been really careful in public with masks and so far so good. We landed in LA about a week ago and we've rented this lovely Airbnb in Lincoln Heights, which isn't an awesome part of LA, but we it's a beautiful four bedroom house with a backyard and we're really it's in East LA, so we're very close to our dearest friends turns out we have more friends in LA than we have in New York at this point because everybody has left New York yeah so our skid turning is really like who goes on the road during COVID-19 we do and it's been a journey I you know my husband and I joke about how it's been like Homer's Odyssey where you're meeting the witch Circe on one island and the Scylla and Charybdis and Calypso and all of these, because we've been seeing a lot of people along the way and having conversations about what they're doing and how this is, how they're turning into the skid or not. And also talking to this has all been going on at the same time as the George Floyd protests. And yeah. so it's, it has been sometimes, I mean, I, I've never experienced a time in my life like it. It is both stunning and heart wrenching and long overdue and angering and 
you know, to be walking through this at, at personally in upheaval at the same time that our very country is um, in such turmoil has been humbling and heartbreaking and hopeful. So you also had said to me that you you and Ira are seriously considering leaving the United States. Yeah. Moving to if Portland. we're allowed to. If you're allowed. Meaning if we're allowed to enter the EU. Yeah. But that's a big decision to leave yeah. your country well, of origin. I grew up kind of internationally. My mom was from Sweden oh. and she came to the States when she was she spent a, she had a Fulbright to go to Cornell for a year. And that's where she met my dad, who was a New Yorker, a Brooklyn boy. She was the only one who moved to this country. So all of my relatives on her side are still in Sweden. And I was born in London. And we lived in London twice when I was growing up. So between the Swedish factor of going there every summer growing up and the influence of a very, very European mother and living in, in England twice by the time I was eight. And then I spent my junior year in Vienna, Austria, uh, where I learned German. And my first husband was from Switzerland. I spent a lot of time elsewhere. And Ira and I have always known that we wanted to live abroad. We weren't sure where it was going to be or when it was going to be. So this is kind of the fact that we don't really have work here right now and that we can rent our house out for a good amount of money, even during the winter, means that we have the flexibility to go. The idea right now is to go to Portugal in mid-November after the election and then come back in mid-April and just have this, we're calling it the wonder wander year where we're just trying to figure out what's next. And mm -hmm. honestly, if it's just a wonder wander year and we come back in April and decide we're done, we just want to stay at home, then we'll stay at home and figure it out. But we both have a sense that there's something happening within us and in the world and with our loved ones that is compelling us yonder. And whether that's Portugal or Spain or Italy or Bali or I, I don't know, we're starting in Portugal. So Portugal is a place that we have heard a lot about uh, lately. And we honestly, we would like to live below our means in a warm climate. And we've considered Mexico. We're getting a sense that it's not the time to live in Mexico for us right now. <laughs> Things are pretty hairy vis-a-vis uh, yeah. -vis the virus, but it might still be a possibility. But Portugal has 300 days out of the year where it's sunny in the area that we're looking at, which is kind of around Lisbon and a little farther south in Alentejo, I believe it's called. My husband is a surfer. We love water. We love the countryside. You know, we left New York City almost seven years ago to move out to the beach on Long Island and have, you know, renovated a beautiful old farmhouse. And we really love kind of country living and to be able to afford a beautiful old kind of Portuguese farmhouse 
that we can have some land at and there's an international community, but it's, it's slow paced. And frankly, after living in New York city for 25 years and I'm kind of ready for something like that. And so is my husband and having been raised internationally, I want my kids to have that. I want them to have and be kind of citizens of the world in a sense. And I think there's something really important about having experiences of living in different countries that kind of displaces you and replaces you. And I just know that I moved around every two or three years growing up and in different countries with different languages. And even though it was, it was really hard and I would not want to replicate that with my kids because that was every two or three years that it keeps you humble to be in a, a culture that's different from your culture of origin. And it also just expands your view on things. Yes. You know, it's funny. Your story is more international. Mine is here in the States domestically seeking the right place that feels like home. I mean, New York for me, I, I was in New York City for, oh my God, started School of Visual Arts in 74. Wow. And uh, moved in on the day I graduated at the age of 22 and uh, lived in the city and lived in, I mean, I consider Brooklyn my home. I lived there for thir 30 years and uh, practiced in New York City, but I had gotten burnt out. And I needed something to change. And after my mom died, I said, I need a different pace. And I chose Charleston. I think it is a beautiful city, but I feel this calling to live in an area that is more urban. And I really am looking to explore and probably move up to Atlanta and weather and living along the Beltline. I, I just, I miss urban peeps and I like warm. I get it. And I feel like it'll be a good fit. And if that leads me somewhere else, I will do that. But I think after just moving once, leaving New York, coming here, and I actually had moved to different places here. I was considering moving to DC. I was flying back and forth, seeing clients there and here. And I just last year said, let me just be in one place and really figure out where it is I want to be that has ease and grace and, you know, will not be uh, crazy in terms of, you know, real estate and the cost of renting or buying as it is in New York City. Isn't it interesting how so often before a big move, there's this moment, like you said, the quiet before the storm, or I feel like that's what COVID did yes. to many of us who are finding ourselves reconsidering and shifting and realizing that things don't have to be a certain way. I think, you know, we get so stuck in expectations of, okay, what does it look if you make this kind of money, then you need to buy a house and you need to yeah. live in a Major. good school district and you need to live with people who look like you or sound like you or mm -hmm. have the same political views. And that is about as self-limiting as it doesn't have to be that way. No, it doesn't. And I so agree with you. And for me, you know, as, and I've mentioned this before, when COVID hit, I been brick and mortar for a long time. I mean, I've been in practice 25 years prior to that. I was a art director, designer, and consultant. And I woke up one morning and I went, 
do I really want to go back to my office? And this is like two weeks after COVID hit and everyone was, you know, uh, quarantining. And I just went, I'm done with an office. And right now, in light of uh, COVID-19, I am not comfortable in uh, performing acupuncture. And I have been wanting to be virtual for the longest time. And this just propelled me in that direction. And that's exactly where my practice is right now. And it feels wonderful and it's liberating. And people have said, do you miss acupuncture? And I said, right now, no. And if I choose to do that in the future at a different time, I can. But I love the idea of having the freedom to take my laptop with me. And if I'm in the Pacific Northwest or I'm in Atlanta or wherever, I can work with anyone. And it gives me that freedom. I, maybe this is my kind of the writer coming out trying to make metaphor out of out of things. But is there a way that what you're doing their podcast is a kind of virtual acupuncture where you're finding these, you know, these tender spots that can can trigger movement? And, you know, I just knowing you and knowing the desires of your heart to connect and impact positive growth and change. I don't know. Maybe there is something about that. I feel that at this time in my life, I want to be able to reach more people. And I believe that through a podcast and doing other things with groups of individuals, you can bring about profound change. You can hold the space for others, whether they're listening to a podcast in Seattle or they're somewhere in the United States that moves people. And just this morning, I hadn't looked in a while, and I realized that my subscribers for this show has over doubled in the past few months, and that moved me deeply. Since COVID, do you think? Yeah. That's really interesting. If you were a superhero, Meg, you would have a dragon kimono on, just like, <laughs> just like when you were a 12-year-old acupuncturist. Yes, you know, <laughs> just like whack my microphone. Yes, the evil spirits have come upon them. And, and I get them out. Feisty tarts. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do something about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I love the show because I love being able to feel that people are pulling up with a cup of coffee or tea and getting some comfort and saying, you know what, this is really helpful right now. Or it just takes them out of the place where they are and they feel like they're part of a conversation. Oh, the podcasts are genius. I have really depended on many podcasts over the past few months, you know, to get mm -hmm. me going and to get me to fold my underwear, for God's sakes. You know, it's it makes <laughs> the kind of bone-crushing boredom of housekeeping and you know, bill paying, not as bone crushing as it was before. So if you were, what do you feel about where you are right now in this moment and who you were maybe March 1st before you Which really was my birthday? Oh, wow. I did mm -hmm. not know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What has shifted within you and your way of being in the world? Has something changed? I feel like a lot has changed. And it's July, so April, May, June, four months. I mean, it really seems like sometimes you feel like things are about to change and then all of a sudden the change is upon you. And it's like there's a, yes. different, a different weather going on inside of you and you don't know, it feels really uncomfortable. And you're like, I don't, you know what? I just don't feel comfortable in my own skin. And I feel, in a sense, I feel deeply unsettled. 
I don't know how you, how you would be in my position and not feel deeply unsettled. And I'm trying to be okay with that. Like for me, because I grew up moving every two or three years, my home has meant everything to me. My routine means everything to me. Ira and I live a very kind of interesting, exciting life. We travel a lot. We've traveled a lot with the kids. My daughter was on 21 airplanes by the time she was one. We've always had a wandering kind of wanderlust going on, but Mm -hmm. I always needed a home to come back to. So this stage of being not, you know, we're living in a wonderful Airbnb right now, but it's not my home. It's not what I have for myself. So I'm unsettled. There's a lot of stuff going on in our family, not our nuclear family, but our, our kind of brothers and sisters right now. And it's, and they're here and it's good that we're here. So I feel Mm -hmm. like it's just an unsettled time and that's okay. Unsettled doesn't mean crisis necessarily. For me, it used to mean crisis. Now it just means that things are up in the air and we don't know where they're going to land. But I have experienced such grace in Mm. the past and maybe becoming wiser and more trusting that actually there is something that's next. It's not all apocalyptic, even though sometimes it seems that way, that there is a next, no matter what happens, even if it's the worst case scenario, there is a next step. So I don't know if that answers, but I think not being as addicted to comfort and certainty. I think that's the American addiction is to come certainly comfort and probably the certainty too. Cause honestly, the fact of the matter is that nothing's ever been certain. Yeah. So maybe we're living closer to the bone than before. I want to thank you for being here today. This was such a lovely conversation and so glad that I could share this time with you and that you could be here. And the beauty of podcast, you know, you're out in LA and I'm here in Charleston and we get to come together and share with other women and men an incredible story. I'm entirely honored to have been asked and thank thank you, my dear. So everyone, thank you for being here today. I'm always about feeding the soul and providing some nourishment. And I hope that was what this podcast was able to give you in some way, shape, or form. And if you like the show, please share with others. And you can subscribe on podcast, on Spotify, or iTunes. And if you would like to work with me, reach out. MegRichichi.com has all my information. If you have any questions, you can reach out and ask questions. And also, I would like to remind people, I did a podcast a couple of months ago that goes through supplements and what things that people can do right now to support their immune system during COVID-19. I actually believe that a lot of the supplements I recommended and lifestyle recommendations really made a difference for me. So please check that out. I just want to make sure everyone stays healthy and strong. And until next time, I send you tremendous love and grace. Take good care. And I will speak to you soon. Be well.